You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Muriel Newman is a former ACT MP and a founding member of the ACT Party. She also runs the New Zealand Centre for Political Research. Muriel is very concerned with our political environment and the divisive nature of politics these days. She joins me now. Welcome to The Crunch. Thank you very much. Your political upbringing really started with the ACT Party, didn't it? Yep, that's right. I, To be fair, I didn't really have uh, much involvement in politics before then, except, you know, like I was the president of the Chamber of Commerce in mm. Whangarei. Um, but that wasn't really politics as such. It certainly wasn't national politics. So it started really when we met Sir Roger Douglas, um, he'd been the Minister of Finance, he'd been sacked. Uh, we invited him to Whangarei to launch a book that my husband had written. Um, the publishers wanted a book on how to make money following the share market crash to try and boost everybody's confidence. And um, yep. Frank had written Making Money in New Zealand. Roger came up and um, launched the book. There were a thousand people turned out to hear him make a State of the Nation address because... He was the most controversial politician of the day back then. Yeah, and, sure uh, was. And when he formed uh, ACT, um, yeah, he sort of got in touch with me and, and asked if I wanted to um, become involved. So it was a journey of discovery. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And in 1996, you ended up as a list MP for the ACT Party in Parliament. And from there, you went on, uh, you had eight MPs at that stage uh, in 1999. Uh, went down to seven MPs, and then in 2002, only two MPs, and you missed out after, uh, or in 2005, it went down to only two MPs, and you missed out after that. Yeah, it was, um, I think pretty much we were eight and then nine and then down to two, and yes, I was, um, I missed out. Um, we could see it coming, of course, because that was the time where um, Don Brash had taken over as leader of the National Party, and a lot of people said he was more act than act. Yeah. And, um, yeah, our vote just uh, switched across. So suddenly on election night, you think, right, what am I going to do now? And so then you set up the New Zealand Centre for Political Research and have been blogging, writing, doing policy work ever since then. That's right. It's um, It was such a learning curve, to be honest, for me, going into politics and then into Parliament. Mm. Like, I learned so much, and I realised that, you know, most of the public never got that opportunity and never got the insight that, you know, I had because of being there. Yeah. And I thought, well, one of the contributions I could continue to make was to actually try and share some of that insight. And, yes, so that's been driving me for all these years. You know, I've always, you know, never wanted to go into Parliament as, an, as a member of Parliament because I've always viewed the system as being against the members of Parliament and their aims and ideals. And I've witnessed and you know spoken to hundreds of of MPs and politicians over the years, and you know you see this idealistic zeal in their eyes and getting in there to make changes. But when they get in there, the system just grinds them down, and it keeps on going, and it never changes. Was that your experience of Parliament as well? 
Um, it's a bit difficult because we were always in opposition while I was there. So mm. we we were sort of helping to try and change things all the time. That was our focus. Um, but we did used to talk every time there was an election or a, a new minister was appointed to a cabinet position. We did used to sort of observe how they went in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they either succeeded and the department uh, was changed to deliver what they wanted or they were ground down and, um, and the system, as you say, it just carried on. And the number of ministers who had the ability to actually override uh, the system Yes, it was quite limited, really. Most of them um, really never got to do, I think, what they really wanted to. Yeah. In in all in the nine years or, uh, or so that you were in Parliament, who stood out for you as a top MP or and or a top minister that that impressed you in being able to get things done, irrespective of whether you agreed with their politics, their political leanings, or anything else. Hard one. Um, we're going back a, a lot of years now. Um, I think it was some of the National Party leaders. Uh, Bill English would have stood out as Minister of Finance. He helped to underpin some of the welfare reforms, and then Judith Collins was the Minister of Welfare when a lot of those reforms were put in place. And I always saw that as being, you know, a pretty remarkable. Achievement, really, because number one, welfare reform is always difficult. And number two, they did it in such a way that it was clear to everyone that they were trying to help to improve the system. Yeah. Whereas mostly what happens is that opponents, they rebrand it as, you know, trying to destroy the system and harm people. And I always thought that the way they brought in that, that social enterprise approach was very good. And it did actually signal what welfare reform was all about, was to make it work better, make the system work better, to give people a better chance at a better life. And that was always lost in the process. That, um, yeah, so Bill English, um, he was one. Um, you know, to be fair to John Key, I think he did uh, quite a good job on the, at the level of being able to inspire people yep. and inspire a country. I always remember um, reading a, um, a piece by one of the senior journalists from the press gallery about how they'd been at a, um, it was an Anzac service and they'd said it was um, overseas and, and it was an Anzac service and, and they said that there was a crowd of people and people were yelling out to John Key after the service had finished and tumbling down over other people in their eagerness to get to him to be able to shake his hand. And, and the point she was making was that she had never in all the years of following prime ministers around the world, she'd never seen that level of excitement at seeing a prime minister in, in real life, you know, in the flesh. And I think he did have that, that impact. Um, but then at a different level, there were loads of things that, that he did that were probably not very wise in retrospect. Well, trying to change the flag was, was one of those. And I said to him at the time that he would lose that, and he seemed utterly convinced 
that he would be able to convince the New Zealand public just by dint of his personality to change the flag. And part of his rationale was, well, the Labour Party has it as part of their manifesto that they want to have a referendum on the flag, so they'll support it too. And I said, you don't understand the Labour Party very well then, do you? They'll they'll throw that to one side just so that they can stick pins in your eyes. And that's exactly what happened. But no, I think, you know, because he was a new member of parliament, I mean, this is the issue with Luxon too, because he was sort of an outsider, mm. um, you know, it takes a long time before you get that gut feeling about politics. Uh, some people pick up on it very quickly, but for most people it takes a while. And, um, and I think that as a a new prime minister, he made, you know, some really good decisions. But as Mm. I say, I think um, in some areas he was quite naive and uh, to the the detriment, really, of the country in some areas. Yeah, just touching again on Bill English. um, Bill English and and myself and and indeed my family have had a long-standing bitter feud with Bill English, which is really deeply personal. But on a Another level, um, you know, the things that you were talking about that impressed you are the things that impressed me about Bill English as well, uh, that he saw a need to have welfare reform, uh, but needed it to be data-driven so that they weren't just throwing good money after bad and that they were actually going to make a demonstrable difference uh, rather than just expanding this massive trough of cash into the welfare system, and uh, and I admired I admire him for that. But it was strange because during the coalition negotiations between National and New Zealand First after the 2017 election, when it was raised by New Zealand First, they wanted to do further welfare reform. Bill English looked across the table, pointed at his cup of tea that he had in front of him, and said, "I would rather piss in that cup of tea than touch welfare reform." And I found it astonishing to hear that from insiders that were in that room at the time. How does that reconcile? I mean, you've probably just heard that for the first time, but, you know, this is a guy that actually devised some sensible welfare reforms and now he was turning it down. You know, I I still struggle to believe that he did that, but I've had multiple people confirm it, that that's exactly what he did. The thing is that he put welfare reform onto a particular track. Mm. If you recall, there was was a big um, uh, review of welfare beforehand, and Mm. the uh, review committee, Paula Repstock was the chairman from memory. Um, The review committee came out with a list of, of quite difficult reforms, and he chose the track uh, to go down, or he and, and obviously the, the minister, Judith Collins and, and others, they chose the track that they were going down. They avoided a couple of the things that we thought they should have introduced, but nevertheless, it was a reasonable pathway. And all I can say in response to what you've just said happened around that cabinet table, um, my view would be that the system was on a track and they would not have wanted a different type of policy reform to come in and take and take it off off rail mm. take it off balance 
And so that's, I mean, in my mind, that would be the only rationale for that because their policy reform, they'd only really just got it going, to be honest. It took a few years to sort of bed in. And there were going to be different stages to the process as time went by. Yeah. Um, and I would assume that if, if you come in with some new ideas, you could very easily um, yeah, put, take it, derail it really, and he wouldn't have wanted that. So, I mean, that's my excuse for him. I hope that was it and not, not anything else. That's ironic though because um, by not managing to cut a deal, then you got wholesale welfare reform in the other direction anyway by having Labor in charge and throwing billions of dollars at welfare. It was so unfortunate what happened there. I mean, mm. you know, I can remember writing about, you know, how how the country had spoken, the country, um, they voted to stay on course with National. Yeah. And if you remember, you know, we were um, called a rock star economy and, yeah. you know, things were going pretty well in New Zealand. And so I think the expectation was that uh, Winston would do a deal with National. And I think we were all pretty much gobsmacked when, you know, he did the opposite. And no matter what the personal animosity was between them all, in a way, what I think everybody would have hoped is that the good of the country would have been put at the forefront of everyone's minds. And obviously, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Yeah, I've spoken to Winston about that, and he said, look, Cam, he said, the bottom line was this, National just wouldn't negotiate. He said, we reached out to them first. We felt that it was responsible for us to talk, go and talk to the National Party first because they were the largest party. And it became very apparent very quickly on that uh, whilst the members of the National Caucus and indeed some of the negotiating team wanted to cut a deal. And if you think about the stumbling blocks, you know, it's been said that the Provincial Growth Fund was a stumbling block, you know, because of the $3 billion. When you look at the spending that's gone on with the Labor government and the borrowing that's gone on, $3 billion is a rounding figure now. And uh, that was the stumbling block, you know, and if only Bill English had put aside his personal animosity, and that's what I've heard from people who were in the room from National and people who were in the room from New Zealand First, they all wanted to do a deal with the National Party. But the feeling over that week was that National wasn't negotiating. They just they wouldn't even play. And so he had no choice but to go with the Labour Party. And, and you're right, it was an unfortunate thing, given what's happened in the ensuing years and the billions upon billions upon billions of borrowings that we've got for zero improvement in any government services or outcomes in any demonstrable way. So it was a crying shame uh, that that happened. But, you know, there's no rules under MMP that says you have to go with that party or this party. It's whoever can command a majority of the House. And I think people still, even after 30 years of MMP, are struggling with the concept of how it all works. And that includes wasted votes. Um, it includes how coalitions are formed. Do you see any particular way that we could improve the general understanding of the electoral system that we've chosen twice? 
now will never change it again. I don't think it will change in my lifetime. But I, I can see a malaise. We get it in comments from people on the on the show saying, oh, you know, I don't understand what you mean about wasted vote or the effect of a wasted vote. And I'm sitting there shaking my head, staggered that after 30 years we haven't worked this out. I think, um, number one, you're right. Everything you've said there is correct, that um, people people understand they've got two votes. Um, They understand that the party vote um, is the thing that determines the government. Um, the wasted vote, I mean, I, I mentioned that in my latest newsletter and mm. immediately um, you could see people's hackles rising because, um, and I think, I think education is the only answer uh, and I don't mean that sitting them down in the classroom, I just mean we have to keep beating on about it, we have to keep saying it even if it's unpopular. Um, just looking, before I go back to that, just looking at the bigger picture, what I hope that that negotiation in 2017 did was that I hoped it would act as a warning to any parties that have to negotiate a new government that they have to put their own personal views to one side and they have to actually look at the good of the country. They have to say to themselves, is doing this deal or that deal going to be better for the country? Okay, that's the deal that's going to be better for the country. Now, how can I change their mind so I can get the things that I really want through? And it's got to be, it's got to be at that level where the good of the country comes first because what happened at the last, um, that negotiation back in 2017, was that, you know, the good of of the kingmaker was probably put up the hierarchy higher than the good of the country. And so, unfortunately, and as you say, um, obviously there was difficulties trying to negotiate and all those things, but if you, if you forget about the personalities involved and you just look at the outcome, mm. the outcome was really bad for New Zealand. And so I just hope that um, the political parties realize how bad things can get if we have a a bad government because I don't think any of us realized how bad it could or how low we could go as a country. And and then when you come to the actual mechanics of of MMP, you know, this business of the wasted vote, um, my view has always been if you don't like any of the ones who are likely to govern, Right, So you look yep. at the polls and you look at all the ones over 5% or on the cusp, like 4.9, 4.8 or you yep. know, in the fours anyway. Yep. If, if you don't like any of them, you hold your nose and you vote for the one that you think will do the least damage to the country. You know, yeah. that's the way you've got to go. Because if you vote for a party that's on 2% or 3%, that hasn't got a hope of getting over the line, then effectively your vote is going to, okay, it's binned, right? And then all the others are scaled up. But the effect is that your vote goes to prop up the parties that you do not like at all. Mm. And you are better to actually put your vote into a party that will make it, even if you don't like them, at least you don't support the bad guys. (laughs) Yeah, well, see, that's the thing that I've been saying, and boy, is it exercised a lot of listeners, you know, and I get all sorts of mail telling me I'm wrong about this. Well, you know, I've been involved in politics all my life. I've been commentating on politics for over 20 years. And um, 
it sounds arrogant, but I'm not wrong on this. And you're 100% right. And I'd qualify that a little bit and I'd say, I would assess what the things are that are important to you and then choose a party that will give you most of those things. You, you're never going to find a party that you agree 100% on. And, and I'm sure you, as a, as a former ACT MP, uh, are sitting there looking at the ACT party now and thinking, well, that's not the party that I belonged to back then. But, you know, the majority of the things that they believe in, the policies that they've got are are there. And even though those things make me queasy a little bit, it's still better than the National Party or New Zealand First or whatever. Um, and so you choose a party that is the least offensive to you. Yeah. That's right. And the argument has often been it's not so bad now because I think people, number one, they're tuning in. Um, yeah. This was the, the big thing. What what we found, and you would have found this in, in your work over the years, that between elections, the majority of the population don't give a toss about politics, really. I mean, they watch what's on the news or read the headline, but they don't think too deeply about it. They go about their lives, and that, that is the thing that consumes them. But in election year, they start to check in. And the closer you get to the election, the more people check in. And so I'm pretty sure that by the time the election comes, a vast majority of New Zealanders have actually figured out where they're going to vote. Now, that doesn't stop the ones who choose when they're in the voting booth because there's still a sizable number of those people. But in general, the interest in politics rises and then people start to try and figure out, well, do I like this one or do I like that one? But there was a period a while ago where, you know, the comments you got from everyone was, well, we don't like Labour and we don't like National, so what the hang are we going to do, you know, as a country? Yeah. And my view has always been just wait, because by the time the election or the uh, first lot of voting starts, the parties will have put out their, man their manifestos. Um, there will have been a lot more commentary on what they're promising. And then you are in a position where, as you say, you can have a look for yourself at which are the hot-button issues for you, and you can figure it out. Well, exactly. And, and I guess we've seen that. Like Up until about a month ago, the election was harder to pick than a broken nose. But now, <laughs> after last week and... And, you know, the poll on Monday, uh, it's five polls, five polls in the space of seven days that have been released that all show that Labor's vote has collapsed. And it also shows, and that's something that David Farah mentioned on the show last week that he's never seen before in New Zealand politics, is that Labor's vote has collapsed and it's going everywhere. It's going to... Uh, the National Party, it's going to the Green Party, it's going to the ACT Party, and it's also going to New Zealand First. And this could be an unprecedented election in terms of a party that won a majority, right, 50% of the vote, has seen their support cut in half in just three years. It's incredible, really, when you, when you think about it. But I, I think it's um, a reflection of just how bad they've been. Yeah. You know, and when you look at them now, um, there was a clip on the news the other night of Chris Hipkins standing with his supporters at uh, a corner by a road and they all had signs and everything. And, and when you look at them and you think to yourself, well, can they campaign on their record 
No. <laughs> they haven't got anything good on their record. Everything they've promised has either not eventuated or turned into a disaster, and they've even managed to ruin most of the public services that used to be working okay. And then you say, well, can they promise their way out of this election? And the answer is no to that as well, because they've got no credibility left. And so yeah, I mean, you, you think, well, what are they campaigning on? And the only thing they can campaign on really is, you know, you're a loyal Labour supporter, you've got to stick with us. But then will those people go out and vote on, on election day? And a lot of them won't. There's no guarantee of that. But, you know, you're right. If you look at all of these massive promises that they've made over the last six years, you know, 100,000 Kiwi-built houses. But the reality is is that if you sat them in a room full of Lego, they couldn't build a single house. Uh, you know, you had a billion trees they were going to plant. Well, we've, we haven't seen a little counter on that, have we? There's nothing on that. Uh, you know, the, the new bridge across the harbour, uh, across Auckland Harbour, where's that? Where's the light rail? To, these are massive policies that they set aside budget funds for that they've never achieved. What happened to that money? Did it get reallocated? You know, these are the, these are things that no one's asking in, in the mainstream media. Here's all these promises. And where, where's all the hundreds of millions of dollars that have specifically gone to Maori projects? Now, you look at COVID, and the masses of money that, that went there, no accountability at all for any of that sort of spending. Yeah, and you hear the National Party people saying, oh, you know, if Winston had only chosen Bill English. But hang on a second, the National Party um, opposed the Provincial Growth Fund of $3 billion. And if Bill English had been smart, he could have said, well, okay, we'll have a Provincial Growth Fund, but the lead minister is going to be a national minister so that we can keep tabs on where the spending's going. And that would have solved the problem, but for some reason they couldn't get that through. But ultimately, you're right, the money that was spent with this COVID recovery fund is incredible, eye-watering numbers with little obvious benefit to the community. And I've just heard... And you know uh, that yeah, I've just heard today that uh, the New Zealand Transport Authority, or Waka Kotahi as this government likes to call it, has got this special fund that they call the Minor Enhancement Program, where if they're acquiring land for new roads or expanding a road or whatever, and the, and the landowner of the land that they want to take is a Maori owner or a Maori organisation that owns it, then the compensation that they pay for that land is higher than if it was any other Kiwi. And on top of that, however much land they take that they're paying compensation at a higher rate, they also guarantee to give the own landowner replacement land somewhere else. So they're paying almost you know, probably more than two times what the value of the land is in doing this and preferring people based on who their ancestors are. That's just shocking, that sort of thing. And, of course, it's rife now right throughout New Zealand, throughout our public service. I think that is one of the, the most despicable things that Labour has done is mm. divide society according to race. And when it comes to the health system and you hear that, you know, two people are waiting for an operation and the one who's Maori gets chosen first rather than the one who's sicker, 
I mm. mean, that makes you sick. It's just terrible. And the new government, if there is one, if, if, if the, these guys get booted out, then the new government will have to change all that sort of stuff. It cannot be allowed to continue. That's what worries me because I listened to Christopher Luxon uh, come out and, you know, Winston Peters on the weekend said that Maori are not indigenous. And, you know, if you look at the oral history of Maori, apparently they came here in seven canoes uh, from various different yep. places. They effectively were the first colonizers. It's the, in their oral history. Winston Peters says it and has, to his credit, said it for years. The media leaps into that, and there's Christopher Luxon standing up saying that Winston Peters is wrong. And I shake my head and I think, are you really going to undo this co-governance stuff? Are you really going to undo this Maori wonderfulness, that the revisionist history of the treaty, everything else? Because it seems to me that Christopher Luxon is wetter than an otter's pocket and will actually buy into that woke agenda and we'll see no change at all other than they're wearing blue shirts now, not red shirts. Look, I think the issue is hugely important. It's hugely controversial, as we know as well. Mm. I think Winston did the country a good service when he reminded everyone that Maori were the first migrants and were not indigenous. Yep. Because obviously if they were indigenous, they would have had to have been in New Zealand since the time the country separated from the other mass of the earth. Mm. And that, of course, was not the case. And so, um, you know, it's all semantics. They like to use the indigenous claim because that gives them uh, a moral authority that they don't actually have. They like to talk about this treaty partnership, which, which is a complete and utter fabrication. Mm-hmm. They've made it up, but it gives them a moral authority. And then they can go out and they can, you know, teach our kids all this, this false stuff. And they can use it to gain hold of resources and power and control, like you were saying with the, um, with the Ministry of Transport and their mm. compensation package. And so it's a path to riches for a certain small elite of Maoridom who've got their hands right on this whole tribal thing and they're pushing it for all they're worth and they're conning the country into thinking that they're looking after all Maori when they're absolutely not. It's a scam. It's a terrible, terrible thing that's been going on and it's a a sad indictment on a government that actually backs it and, and empowers it. And that's what's been happening. I'm still staggered, though, by Christopher Luxon's attitude on this. So, you know, just like it's simple facts. And you know, what you'd say, too, about the revisionist history of the Treaty of Waitangi, about this partnership, what they're wanting us to believe is that the Empress of India, the head of the British Empire at the time, Queen Victoria, agreed to a treaty with a group of people that were illiterate, had no technology, Stone Age technology. They, they couldn't even make pots. They didn't have pots. They didn't have metal work. There was no wheel. Uh, lived in Raupo huts. And she signed a treaty that said, you're on an equal footing with me. It defies belief that that's what they're actually telling us happened and well you 
just got to say, who are the people who are actually swallowing that, you know? And they're the ones, too, who need to be held to account because these things can only get a life and be empowered when a whole bunch of people um, back it. And, you know, what they've all done is they've backed something that is clearly a lie and they've now sort of made it so that actually it is controlling. It's controlling public services, for goodness sake. It's what's controlling the, the new Three Waters um, program. It's what's controlling the health system, the RMA, you know, and it's, and it's right through the public service too. If you look at any public service website now, you'll find something about co-governance in there, something about um, the treaty partnership, how they're all signing up to it and aligning to it and trying to be better treaty partners. It's just awful what's been going on. Yeah, it's a, uh, this polarisation and separatism that has you know, nastily been introduced into New Zealand politics by the Labour Party uh, mostly, but also the changes that we've seen in the leadership of the Maori Party, you know, when we had Peter Sharples and Tariana Turia as leaders of the Maori Party, that was a party that I could see myself voting for. I can't see myself voting for a party that's led by Debbie Nari Wapaka and Rawari Waititi. I, you know, I just, the things that they say are just the most appallingly racist things that they say, and they get away with it. Isn't it terrible? So, other people say things which are all they're doing is questioning something, right, to do with Maori, and they're yeah. accused of racism. Those guys say the most outrageous things, and nobody blinks an eye. It's it's a terrible indictment of the mainstream media that that's the approach that they've taken. And look, going back to Christopher Luxon, what he's come out and said is that, from what I understand is that there should not be any co-governance of public services. Totally agree with that. And if he stands true to his word, what he's going to have to do is he's going to have to go through the whole public service and he's going to have to take out all references to the treaty partnership, to co-governance. All of that stuff that Labour's put in is going to have to be stripped out. Now, he, what he has also said, which I don't actually agree with either, but nevertheless, this is what they have done as a party, they still support the idea of co-management of, of some mountains and rivers and, and mm. you know, formerly public resources. Well, I don't agree with that. I mean, you just have to, to look at what Tuhoi have done um, down in the Uruwaras and, you know, it's just turned into a disaster um, but nevertheless, that, that was their policy, and so they, they haven't negated that, but they have, Luxon has said that we will get rid of um, this stuff in public services. And I just hope, number one, he realises what a big job it is, and that, number two, he's up to the job and they, they do a thorough job. Well, that's the problem that I have, is I don't think he understands the size of the problem. And if you look at his history with what he did at Air New Zealand going all woke there, I can't see it happening. And the second thing is um, there's no – he doesn't have the political will to actually go through that and remove it and strip it all out and bring us back to, you know, we're, we're all the same. We're all Kiwis. 
And um, I think that we are still going to see this divisive, nasty, uh, racist uh, behavior going on uh, and promulgated and pushed mostly by those on the left side of politics, but some of those on the right side of politics who uh, go along to get along uh, so that they can win elections and you know, get that middle road of New Zealand on their side. And, you know, none of this has ever worked anywhere in the world going down a separatist path or a polarised path. It ends in tears and it more often than not ends in blood. And that's what scares me the most about all of this rhetoric that is going on around the place that has really only risen its head in the last six years. That's right. And, you know, fundamentally what it's doing all that stuff, is it's undermining democracy. And if you think about, you know, democracy is sort of the cornerstones of freedom, Mm. they're the rule of law, and the rule of law operates on the fact that everybody is treated equally. And that's what co-governance doesn't do. It elevates one group of New Zealanders above the other and says you're the privileged lot. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, for the sake of our democracy, there's a huge job to do. And it is about restoring equality. It is about restoring the rule of law. And so, you know, my view is that the more voices we have speaking out about the need for those, the better. And, um, you know, you, like me, must have despaired over the last number of years where the mainstream media weren't touching any of these subjects at all except to be critical. And, of course, we can put the blame there again on Labour and their blinking uh, $55 million public interest journalism fund, which Mm. said you could only get the money if you promise to um, promote the treaty partnership. (laughs) And so, you know, we've ended up with, with media being corrupted by the Labour government so that they wouldn't speak the truth on a hugely important uh, policy initiative that was being uh, played out undercover, of course, because the Hipurpur agenda was kept secret by uh, Mm. Labour during the 2020 election. Nobody even knew it existed. And then, lo and behold, the moment they win the right to govern on their own, it starts being enacted uh, rampantly. You know, throughout everywhere, every part of New Zealand started to see you know, Maori names, Maori words, um, just everything started to shift. And it was this unmandated agenda that they were rolling out. And the media sat and turned a blind eye. They're in on it. Yeah. They're in on it. Terrible. That's right. Yes, they were promoting what Labour was saying instead of being critical about what they were doing to democracy in New Zealand. But we saw the media go in lockstep with the government over the pandemic uh, and sold their souls. There was no critical coverage of the appalling human rights abuses that the Ardern regime perpetrated on New Zealand society, all under the guise of protecting granny or, you know, something else from a disease that has turned out to be almost a big nothing. And she sat there dismissively laughing at a New Zealand Herald journalist who said, well, you know, with these vaccine passes, 
uh, aren't you going to create two classes of citizens? It's famous, that clip. It's gone right around the world. It's viral. There was her cackling saying, yep, that is what it is. And what concerns me is that if they did that over health and they bring in two classes of citizens that are based on race or anything else, that they will just flippantly say that's okay, that we want to have that. And we've seen this in history. It never ends well. It never ends well. And that concerns me hugely more than anything. And one of the reasons why I've got this show, so that we can educate people by having guests like you on that are talking about these things without fear of being shouted down or silenced. It's that whole thing of what happened over COVID. It was just another dark stain on New Zealand, really, when you look back, because, you know, like everybody, uh, we were all struggling to figure out what on earth this new disease was. And I can remember right at the beginning, there were some New Zealand experts in the field who said, well, hang on a minute, it's an airborne disease. You're never going to be able to stop it coming into New Zealand. Therefore, you know, lockdowns or any of those things, they're not going to work except maybe in the short term, but you're not going to stop it. And what you actually need is a population that's got immunity, like, Mm. you know, normally builds up in, in most societies. And so we watched as Sweden went down that path and um, most other countries, you know, succumbed or or Western countries anyway, uh, did the lockdown thing. And yet the voices of the people who were saying, hang on a minute, there's other ways of doing this. They were absolutely, like you say, silenced. And those brave doctors who tried, yes, who tried to stand up and speak out and and do things differently, um, they were uh, in some cases deregistered. They were silenced as well. It was it was an appalling an appalling time. And you know, Cam, I don't know whether you're old enough, but I grew up in a in, at a time where one of the books we read as kids at school was Anne Frank's diary. Yeah, read that at school, yep. Yep, and so we looked at what happened in Germany and we we learned all about the evil things that went on, the gas chambers, all that sort of thing. And I can remember mum and dad, of course, were in the war and so were my grandparents. And I always had this burning question, which was, well, how did the people let Hitler get away with it? And you know what? When we went into that lockdown, I suddenly understood why people would allow that sort of atrocity to happen, because it's done in a it's done in the kindest way, right? You know, we're just going to lock you up so that (laughs) so that we'll keep you safe. And it's like they dusted off the manual. It's it's like they took the manual and they dusted. You know, and, and I, you know, I'm a, a keen student of history. I mean, you can't be involved in politics without knowing history, right? And I always had the same questions: How did this happen? How did the German people let this happen? How did the Jewish citizens of Germany allow this to happen? And it wasn't until 2014, when I was in Israel, that I went to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum, which is brilliantly set up, where they walk you through the journey that German people went through that ended in the gas chambers, but it had to start somewhere. And it started with things like 
we can't have you um, 100% owning this business. So we'll, you know, it was small steps all the way, and everyone went, oh, okay, well, that's not so bad. I can live with that. I oh, Look, you can't use that swimming pool. You'll need to use that swimming pool. Oh, well, okay, at least I've still got a swimming pool to go to. And it went on and on like that until they were even selling them tickets for the trains and they were buying tickets to take them to the camps. And it was all told to them as a a great lie, but the German state actually charged them for it as well. And it wasn't until I walked through that museum that I understood. And then when it started happening in New Zealand with the lockdowns, the mandates, the vaccine passes, the vilification, the polarization, the hostility that existed in our society where it was not only politicians but media that were doing it as well, that I realized we are just a few small steps away from totalitarian control here. And that is why I must oppose it utterly. It was really scary because you suddenly, when you started to understand at a deeper level what was going on and how all of our rights and freedoms were suddenly taken away over a three-day period, you know, in three days we're going to go into a total lockdown for a month. And you think, what? Well, they denied <laughs> you know, Make sure you've they got baked beans that. and toilet paper. But, you know, two days before they made that announcement, Jacinda Ardern was interviewed uh, at a stand-up and she was saying, it's a rumour, it's not true. If you haven't heard it from us, it's it's false, it's misinformation. She stood there, and I've got that video, she stood there saying it was all not true, you know, we're not going to do this. And two days later, there she was on our television with Michael Joseph Savage looming over his shoulder and talking to us all like we were naughty children and that we were going into a lockdown and healthy people were being locked up in their houses. They said, do not speak to your neighbours, do not speak to other people, do not do this, do not. But they lied about it right from the get-go, and they've been lying ever since. And I guess that's why all of a sudden their voters collapse because people are focusing on the election and they're saying, well, you know, you did all those things to us. You wrecked my business. You ruined my family. You split up my marriage. You've injured some people I know. Some people I know have got strange cancers and have died. I'm not having any more of this. And so we're seeing the evisceration of the Labour Party after six years of totalitarian control. And I think that's um, that's a warning really to politicians that eventually the people do find their voice and they do... Uh, have the strength to fight back. It's taken a while. You know, the 2020 election, I remember thinking to myself, gosh, this is a really good example of the Stockholm Syndrome, (laughs) where, you know, people who were essentially held captor all of a sudden uh, started treating the captor as the the hero. And um, that was a most peculiar election, you have to say. And then, of course, there was all that strategic voting where... Uh, people didn't think National would make it, so they vote, voted for the Greens to keep them out, and you know, or Labour rather to keep the Greens out, and so it was, was the most odd election. Yeah, yeah, I know. So, <laughs> but, with the state um, of the know, polls now, what's your prediction? What are you seeing is is happening now with the polls all aligning, Labour being eviscerated? 
are we going to see a change of government? And how do you think that's going to play out for some of the, and I think there's 14 minor parties now that are well underneath the 5% threshold. And how is it going to play out for them? I think, first of all, anybody who ever watched Peter Dunn and the Worm on yeah. TV, you remember? 2002. He yeah. went Yep, he went from being a party that was going to have one member uh, to being a party that had eight members of parliament. Yep. And so there in politics, as we all know, unexpected things can happen. Mm. So number one, you can never rule out something unexpected that none of us have ever thought about um, coming in and changing everything, right? Yep. So that's yep. the first thing. But Barring that, and that only happens once in a blue moon, I think that the tide is definitely out for Labour. And as you know, you mentioned earlier, their vote seems to be going all over the place. But I remember after the 2020 election, the analysis that was done essentially showed there was a, about 400,000 former national voters who'd all gone to Labour. Yep. And I think what's happening now is that they're all going back home. And some of them have gone to ACT, um, but I think the problem is ACT is starting to uh, get a bit, bit big for its boots and say things about things that, you know, you should wait until after the election to make um, mm. decisions about coalitions and holding the major party, you know, trying to threaten the major party and all that sort of thing. I think... Uh, David is out of um, place uh, raising all those matters now. And um, so I think ACT's vote is consolidating. And uh, the big question, of course, is whether Winston will get over the line. And, yep. um, you know, he's saying a lot of things that a lot of people want to hear. Yep. And whether or not, you know, they can forget, um, <laughs> you know, what happened in 2017, um, I don't know. Uh, so he's a he's an unknown. In terms of the minor parties, I think that um, a lot of people are very supportive of their minor party. But I, mm. it goes back to what we said at the beginning. I think they have to wait and see how it plays out. There is always a chance that a minor party might make it, yep. but that means them getting four percent or more. I think now, under four yeah. percent, I don't think there's any show. But yeah. if they seem to be getting close, then other people might support them. Um, but if they're not seen to be getting close, usually what happens is the vote collapses because people uh, decide they're going to make their vote count. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so I think that we are on track. If uh, you know, if no, nothing unexpected happens, I think we are on track for a change in government. It will be a national-led government. Um, Act will certainly uh, be there. Um, and the question is whether New Zealand First will be part of the mix. Um, I don't know. Um, I tell you what um, I find quite disturbing, and that is that the so-called coalition of chaos, the Labour, mm. the Greens and the Maori Party, are getting so little scrutiny you know, by the mainstream media. You know, when you look at the radical nature of the Greens, and as we've, we've already talked about the radical nature of the Maori Party, but the Greens are shocking. And yet, you know, they're treated with kid gloves. And I think it's about time they got some scrutiny. 
What about um, the hypothesis that Matthew Hooten has come out with, which followed what I said on the political panel on Paul's breakfast show last Friday, when I, I can see a possibility that Christopher Luxon would rather go and do a deal with the Green Party so that he doesn't have a stroppy and demanding ACT Party giving him a whole lot of grief. Uh, and then supported with New Zealand First to in, ensure that they've got confidence and supply, and, and I think that's a scenario that's possible with uh, with Christopher Luxon as leader. W- what are your thoughts on that? Hey. <laughs> um, I mean, it fills I me with dread. Hugely, <laughs> that would be hugely bad for New Zealand. Yeah, if the Green Party was given proper power, I think it would just be dreadful and I think that National Party supporters should make sure that their leader knows that that mm. you know under no circumstances should National do a deal with the Greens. I know they did a, um, a sort of a support deal didn't they um, yes. back in John Key's day but I think it was more lip service yeah. and to be fair you know those sorts of agreements where you know you can decide to agree on certain things which are going to be for the good of the country, that's not a bad thing, to be honest, because it's it's bringing more groups, isn't it, inside the tent, so to speak. And, and that's what democracy is all about, trying to involve the public. But I think uh, where you've got a party with really radical views having um, their hands on the levers of power, I think the last... Um, three years in particular, should show New Zealand that is not what this country needs at the moment. What we need is strong, stable, middle-of-the-road government that is going to put right all the things that were put wrong over the last six years. Well, that's right. I mean, you're absolutely right. We need to have a strong hand on the tiller, so to speak, so that crazy stuff doesn't happen because it's crazy stuff that's happened for the last six years, just utterly crazy, and nobody's said, well, well no, we're not having a bar rule, of that. it's minority rule, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, totally. it's minority yeah. rule. That's the problem. And so what we need is majority rule. And so, you know, all these um, crazy things that have been going on that, you know, one or two or 3% of the population have been lobbying for, they shouldn't actually see the light of day in the way that they have. Sure, you have to listen to those voices and maybe you can make changes, incremental changes, but not in the way that, you know, they've been able to grab hold of power and change things for the detriment of the country. It's the the very same thing that people who criticise Winston Peters say. They say it's the tail wagging the dog. The system's kind of set up like that where they need these smaller parties to get the majority in Parliament. And so the tail does end up wagging the dog, but very often not in the right proportions that reflect the the vote. So strangely, New Zealanders have had two goes at this and selected MMP both times. But I think the politicians gerrymandered those referendums so that we could um, split the vote three different ways apart from the MMP, and that's what we ended up with. That's, that's right. I, think, I don't that, think that was... Yeah, I think that's the biggest tragedy in New Zealand politics ever is the selection of MMP because we so much hated first past the post. It was interesting because for a while there, I think people thought, 
oh God, you know, MMP is so bad, we need to get first past the post back. But the problem is, effectively, that's what we've had for the last three years. And that's been so bad <laughs> that, you know, you sort of think to yourself, gosh, well, you know, MMP, when you've got more than one party governing, at least it doesn't seem to get to be as bad as it has. So, you know, yeah. Well, we end up with, an, well, my feeling is, is we end up with what I call brown bread politics, which is, you know, you might think it's a good idea until you taste it and um, it's very unappetizing and we actually don't get things done. And so for 30 years, we've been mired in this brown bread politics where everyone's too afraid to do bold things. And the bold things that they do try are things that don't matter to society, like changing the flag or um, you know, some of the other things that have been done on the periphery. Uh, but the fundamentals don't seem to change because it's all too scary and we can't do the bold things. Like, you'd you never have a Roger Douglas rise up under MMP. It just wouldn't happen. Uh, you'd never have a Rob Muldoon again. You'll never get uh, a Norm Kirk uh, doing bold things. You're just not going to get those things under MMP, and, and I think we're poorer for it as a result. But then when you look at the lack of political intelligence uh, or understanding of the systems, you, know, you hear people say, oh, if only we had STV. Well, if people can't grasp the concept of MMP, how the hell are they ever going to grasp the concept of uh, a single transferable vote? It's, that would just be a nightmare. Imagine the chaos from that. So right. we're, st we're stuck with a bad system. We need to... I've look. I always say to people, vote. Just vote, right? Choose who you want and vote for it. But be aware of the consequences or the effects of where you place that vote. And that's where we started this program right at the start. You know, with when we're talking about the wasted vote, and that you can end up having the effect of giving away seats uh, to parties you don't like because you voted for a party that didn't make that threshold. You know, and David Farris said exactly the same thing. He said, if you're not at 4% at this stage of the election campaign, you're not in the campaign. And people need to remember that. No, you're exactly right. And, um, you know, people just have to calm down before they think about voting because, you know, you've you've been involved in enough political campaigns to know how you know, much adrenaline is going and how excited yeah. you get about everything. Yeah. But you actually do have to calm down and you have to think logically about where do you make your vote count. That's the important thing. And I think that's a really good place for us to leave this interview, Muriel. You know, think about how you're going to vote and make it count. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time today to talk to me and hopefully our listeners can learn from that discussion. Thank you very much, Cam. Really appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you, Muriel. Muriel is an intellectual powerhouse in politics, and it's a shame she didn't remain as an MP. But her observations of where we are now in history are as alarming as they are a warning that we all need to lift our game. Tell me your thoughts on what Muriel had to say by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy 
right here on RCR.